Would you please turn to Isaiah 53? I can't think of many texts more important and foundational to our lives than this one this morning. More important to you if you are a non-Christian, an unbeliever, or a professing believer thinking you're a believer, and yet you are not yet in Christ, that's possible. That happens all of the time. And for you who are a believer, we just, we just never get over this, this passage, these truths. And they, they change us. They shape us. May God help us to... To so focus on this this morning, I, I plead with you for your attention for just a few minutes. Would you turn and look at these verses that I'm going to read for a minute? I'm going to pray again. Father, thank you for the prayers just offered up by Dan, the tears. Please help me now in Jesus' name, amen. This is the second of four sermons on this song of suffering, the suffering servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is clearly prophecy 700 years before Jesus would come and die on a cross, and it's talking about Jesus. This passage, this section, this song, which begins in verse 12 of the chapter before, is quoted at least seven times in the New Testament directly and probably 34 other times throughout the New Testament. So there are subtle references to this song. This is an important song. You see, the Lord, Je- the Lord God, Yahweh is His name, says, there is none like me in heaven and on earth. There is none besides me. He says that over and over again in this section of Isaiah. And He is warning God's rebellious people, Israel and Judah, who have turned away to other idols, who have rejected Him, who have sought other saviors and who are full of corruption and sin, he says to them, they are going to be punished and judged, but yet he is going to come and in the midst of their rebellion, he is going to bring forgiveness and in their captivity, he is going to release them and bring them great comfort. And he says he's going to do it with the arm of the Lord. And if you were following the reading plan that we passed out this last couple weeks, you would have read this week in chapter 51 of Isaiah, verse 9, when Isaiah the prophet says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces? Rahab is actually Egypt. Cut Egypt in pieces, and you remember what happened there where God came in with his arm, and the arm of the Lord is his might in action. And when you think God's going to come with his arm, oh yeah, I remember what he did. He brought in with Moses and Aaron the the ten plagues of Egypt, and he says, are you going to do that again? And in chapter 52 of Isaiah, verse 10 The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of the nations. And maybe the prophet and the people of Israel would say, 
I'm ready. I'm sitting at the edge of my seat. God's going to show off his arm now. It's going to come. Watch what God does. We need forgiveness, but we need to be released from our captivity because we're going to be destroyed by the Babylonians. And let's watch out for it. Is it going to be 10 plagues this time? What about 12 plagues this time? Is it going to be the firstborn and the secondborn? What's going to happen when God shows up and bears his holy, mighty arm? And as we come to this passage, we see that God's arm is going to be revealed. But God is going to say, and as we look deeper into this, and as it comes into the New Testament, that the need that we rebellious people have is not for a strong arm of God to just eat, defeat our enemies out there, but that our greatest enemy is from within. And our greatest enemy is our, our sin and a rebellion to God. Would you look at verse 1? I want to read verses 1 through 6. And I want us to behold this passage again. I want us to, I pray that we would be moved and melted by the center of, of seeing God in person in the gospel. God's persons in the gospel, the Father and of the Son. And I hope you see the wicked and the helpless, that's us, help sinners. Look at verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord, this arm he's been talking about in chapter 1 and chapter 51 and chapter 52, whose arm the Lord been revealed? And then he describes something. He describes the servant. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is God's word. May we sit before it and tremble. Who can believe it? The author says here. Who can believe this message? Who did believe it? This good news that was proclaimed, this comfort, this arm of the Lord, this servant that was coming. Who could believe it? This report of message that God is coming. He is bearing His holy arm to save a people and deal with their sins and do it this way? How could He do that this way? And He says, and who has the Lord revealed this servant, His arm, to? 
Faith Church this morning, I want to point you to the arm of the Lord revealed. And he's revealed to you and us as the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant of the Lord. And I want to do that by just pointing you to briefly in the text here, nine things that he says about him that is just of utmost relevance to every one of our lives and to our eternity. Let's just look at them as we go walk through this passage. How is the mighty arm of the Lord revealed as his servant? It's revealed as serving the Father, humble and weak, rejected by his own, suffering, alone, sin-bearing substitute, meeting every need, God's sacrifice for us, and necessary for everyone. Let's see this. Do you see the servant of the Lord here is seen, number one, serving the Father. Serving the Father. Verse two, for he, or it really means the servant of the Lord. This servant of the Lord that's mentioned in verse 12 of the chapter before, who will act wisely, for he grew up before him. Do you see that? Look at verse 2. He grew up before him. Who's the him he grew up before? Well, I like how the New Living Translation says, my servant grew up in the Lord's presence. This servant, whoever he is, and we know it's the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to endure all things, all these things, as a servant of the Father of, the, of Yahweh, and he is called the loving son. Oh, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure we sing, that he should give his only son to make a wretch like us his treasure. Jesus is coming, and he stands before the presence of God, and he serves, and he is before God. This father says he is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus comes and he comes and he's going to serve. And he's going to serve before his father and his father's going to watch him serve. But secondly, we see that he's humble and weak. See verse 2, for he, this is the servant, this is the mighty arm of God come in flesh. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Are there any farmers here? Any ones that like planting and planting trees, planting crops? What's it like to do so in dry ground? How impressive are young plants? Are they strong? He's saying here, this it's, it's surprising. How could it be? He, the servant of God, grew up before him, the father, but like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. I mean, if we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we find that they're asking, is this, this just the son of a carpenter? Mary and the brothers, are, they're looking at Jesus and saying, Jesus, you're insane. You're not the Son of God. They're not believing Him in, his, in the early ministry of Jesus' work. 
It says that Jesus was not impressive. He had no form of majesty. He did not turn eyes. He would not have been spotted in a crowd. He came as the maker of the universe and he came born in a manger. And he's the everlasting mighty God, Prince of Peace. He was announced to poor lowly shepherds, this great King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He was born to teenage Mary and Joseph, pregnant before they were actually fully married. And he's the maker of the universe who upholds it in all things by the word of his power. And this Jesus is going to come, and he's going to come humble and weak. You see, this is the way God does this. He does it all the time. He's shown us in his word that he does this. The course of God's kingdom has always been through what seems like a series of great triumphs, but they're cleverly camouflaged as defeats. Jesus is going to die on a cross, and yet he is bringing redemption and salvation for the world. The strength of the Lord is masked in weakness so that we wouldn't just get so focused on outward appearances and impressive things, but that our hearts would truly trust in God. I wonder if this morning you feel Like you have been all of your life or right now in a humble and weak place. You feel embarrassed and humiliated and discouraged because you are not impressive to the world. Take heart that it is the way that God does his work through weak and humbled people. And he showed that as he comes and he says, I'm going to show my strength through my coming in the flesh in my son, and he's going to be humble and weak, and nobody's going to see his majesty. It's going to be masked in his humanity, and they will look at him, and they'll have to turn their faces. God's a God that works in our brokenness and weakness. Oh, I pray this morning, you just look up to him and have hope, you broken, humble people. That's the place in which God causes faith to rise in our hearts. He chooses us who are broken, simple, ordinary, weak, and foolish. I want you to see also the arm of the Lord revealed, number three, as rejected by His own. We sang this, or Jay read this to us. He was despised and rejected by men. Verse 3. His family did not believe him early on. Jesus, you're insane. You're mad. Come away. Don't keep doing this. His disciples will scatter. One of his disciples betrays him. His nation didn't even accept him, and they crucify him. They looked at him, and they thought, he must be punished, being punished by God for something because who else could be treated this badly? That's, that's the strength of the Lord. I wonder if you're feeling this morning rejected by people. The point of this passage isn't to say, see, this is how you should feel good because he got rejected and if you're rejected, you should feel good too. No, I'm not, it's not the point of the text, but there, as we lean into this, we go, your Savior 
the Lord Jesus Christ was rejected, how, how horrible, how undeserving for him to be rejected. If he was rejected, and when you are, you can humbly, graciously look to your Savior and cling to him and thank him for being rejected, as we'll see, he was rejected for you. I would say that we would have all rejected him because we're not special or different than the people that rejected him there. The people that rejected him were a very good representation of sinful humanity who sees the unimpressive, has their minds made up that they're going to do it, have it their own way, and they reject God's way, and they are darkened in their heart, and they reject him. And so would have we if we were there. I want you to, he was, it says, we, verse 4, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Friends, no, no one has ever, ever been so undeservedly rejected, shamed, misunderstood, and falsely accused. No one. Pilate, I mean, how unjust is this? Pilate's supposed to be a just judge as he comes out and adjudicates this. And he looks and he says, I find no fault in this man. What should I do? Crucify him, they said. Crucify him. I find no fault with him. Crucify him. Okay, where's some water? I'm going to wash my hands. What kind of judge does that? And what kind of crowd turns from celebrating him and flocking to him to see his miracles to screaming bloody murder at the innocent Lamb of God? Number four, this arm is revealed as suffering. You see it all through this passage. Look at verse three again. He was despised and rejected by men. He is a man of sorrows. That's his label. We just sang it. And he is acquainted with grief as one from whom men hid their faces. He what truly is the suffering servant of the Lord. He is a man of sorrows. He's acquainted of grief. He's falsely accused. He has no place to live. His family doubt him. John the Baptist even questions him and says when he's John the Baptist was in prison, are you really the, the real son of God? He faced constant, constant rejection by the nation and he experienced crucifixion and of suffering of which we could never imagine. The physical suffering of pain if you've watched The Passion of the Cross, you see a little glimpse of that. The agonizing, the emotional, and the psychological suffering in which he experienced. Hebrews 2.10 says it, it was fitting that he from whom and by whom all things exist, it's by him, in order that he would bring many sons and we could add daughters to glory, it is fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Through suffering. He was a man of sorrows. He, he, he walks on this earth and he sees the suffering and pain and he gets into it. And he doesn't sin. And he's falsely accused. And he's with the diseased and the hurting and the weak and the broken 
Some of you who are in the medical field, you know my wife recently. That's where she is today. She's on the 11th floor south, McLaren Oncology, uh, and a catch-all floor in which they have patients coming that are, they're just suffering in all different categories. Psychological sufferings, but their, their wounds don't let, allow them to go to the psych ward. They're immobilized. They have amputations. They have Their body is full of sorrows and pains and griefs, and it's one thing after another. Some of them are homeless. People that are in those situations are are doctors, nurses of sorrows because they're experiencing all that. This Jesus was with it, and he was immersed in it. And I wonder if you are. I wonder if you just feel like, just can you just give me that label today? I just feel like I'm a man of sorrows or I'm a woman of sorrows. I, I'm, I'm suffering, and it just feels like it's one, I can't get a break. Oh, Jesus Christ. That is how God said, I'm going to reveal my arm. He's going to come, and he's going to be that. And then number five, I want you to see he's alone. I want you to see God's arm coming alone. Verse four says it this way, and I want you to focus on the pronoun he. Surely he and, and the, the emphasis should be something like this. Surely he and he alone has borne our grief. And he's carried our sorrows. And we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He, surely he and he alone. We find that the sorrows and griefs that he's going to bear... We see this man of sorrows is actually not a man of his own sorrows and griefs. Ultimately, he is taking our sorrows and our griefs. He is carrying them. We see in this passage, he, not us, has borne our griefs. He and not us was pierced for our transgressions. He and not us, he alone was crushed for our iniquities. Can you imagine the loneliness of the Son of God? Are you lonely today? Have you, been, have you been lonely? Have you experienced a solitude that just feels like nobody understands me? Nobody's with me. Nobody gets me. I can't really talk to anybody. I mean, the, the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are the lips of Jesus on the cross. As it seems as though The father turns his face away because the wrath of God went upon Jesus because the sins of mankind were born on Jesus. Oh, the loneliness. He did it. We have a Savior. There's an arm, the servant of the Lord, that saved us, and he did it alone. You didn't help him. The only thing you contributed was make it necessary for him to have to die. You rebelled, you sinned, we all, and I say you, I mean myself included. He bore upon his back the sorrows and sins of all. Number six, do you see? He is a sin-bearing substitute. Verses four and five. Surely, oh, surely he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows and we esteemed him stricken. He was smitten by God and afflicted, for he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Jesus bore our griefs and our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was pierced. That, that word transgressions means for all of our sins of rebellion and disobedience to God. Jesus was pierced. That word, I, I was looking at verse chapter 51 when it says, Oh, the arm of God. In the past, what happened with the arm of God? He pierced the dragon of Egypt symbolically. And ironically, the way God's arm is going to come this time is his own arm. His own servant will be pierced. He will be pierced, but not for his own sins. And not because he's weak in and of itself, but because he is going to be a sin-bearing substitute for our sins. He, it says he was crushed for our iniquities. Our iniquities has to do with the idea of our fallen nature leading us to all our attitudes and actions that cause us to sin. You and I sin because we're sinners. And we're sinners born in our sin. We do bad things because we're bad to our bones. Our hearts are wicked. And He came and He was crushed for those things. This idea pierced is driven to the body and soul to death. Crushed means obliterated. And this passage testifies that and we see it over and over again in the New Testament. Jesus Christ, who is the servant of the Lord, all alone, rejected, humble and weak, suffering, was the sin-bearing substitute. We call this the doctrine, heavy word here, of penal substitution. He took our punishment. He took the punishment for our sin upon himself. And God was training God's people through the Old Testament sacrificial system and pointing us to a lamb or a goat or a bull being killed for the sins of the people would take the place and God would be satisfied and He wouldn't judge a person but would forgive them. You see, when a person lives who otherwise would have died and an animal would die that would otherwise Live, substitution is entailed. That's what happened. There was substitution in that way. And Jesus is the Lamb of God slain for us. First Peter 2, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, the cross, that we might die to sin. By His wounds we have been healed. You were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Or 2 Corinthians 5 in the New Living Translation, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, that we could be made right with God through Him. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son who came. Ruined sinners, that's what we were. To reclaim us. Hallelujah, what a Savior. He was bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place, in your place, condemned, he stood. Sealed our pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless, not he, we. Spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior.
in a few minutes we're going to sing, this the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. Took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. He's a sin-bearing substitute. Do you believe it? Do you have a sin-bearing substitute? I mean, you don't get born in the world with that. You have a sin-bearing substitute by receiving it by faith. You heard it in the testimonies of Jacob and Hendrick. Is that your testimony? Verse seven, the seventh point I want to give you is we see in this passage, he meets every need. What's so glorious about this servant of the Lord who comes and he bears, is a sin-bearing substitute, suffering, weak and broken and rejected. He meets every need. You got sin, he takes care of it. Sickness, he heals it. You have sorrows, he will comfort them. You are broken in your transgressions and rebellion, He was pierced for them. You have iniquity taken care of. That's all the negative stuff that he took care of on the cross, meeting all of your needs. You had needs that you didn't know you have. That's part of growing up in life learning. My needs were greater than I ever thought. And Oh, thank you, God. In Jesus Christ, he has met all of them. And and then even more, it says, by his punishment chastisement. He brought us peace. It means peace with God, harmony with Him. God's now our Father if we're in Christ. We are adopted into His family. We have life and all the promises and the glory. We are healed. We're not just forgiven and left on the curb. We have peace with God. We are made His children and it is glorious. Jesus did all of that. He took all of it for us. He brought us peace. It's an unbelievably glorious reality. And there's more of it. I'm going to share at the end here. Number number eight. We see God's arm revealed by God's sacrifice for us. I know I've been already saying he is the substitute. But I want you to just think about this. God the Father had a sacrifice. It says that verse four, we or those that looked upon Jesus, the suffering one, we misunderstood. We, we saw him and we thought he was paying for his own sin. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But in verse 6 it says, The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now I want to ask you, who killed Jesus? We're going we're gonna to focus on the death of Christ on Thursday night. Who killed Jesus? You may answer in a number of ways. You might answer the Jews killed Jesus. They were part of it. The, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders, you might say, well, the Romans and the system of Romans and Pilate who condemned him and let him be crucified. You might also answer, well, we killed Jesus. My sin put him on the cross. Like Rembrandt's raising of the cross picture, Rembrandt, the artist, is actually standing right next to the cross as they're raising Jesus on the cross to say, I was there when he was crucified. I was a part of it. But I want you to think on this other answer. God killed Jesus. 
Verse 6 says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, and upon him, the servant, the chastisement from God that brought us peace. I think we can better appreciate these words he laid upon us all and when we think about what happened in the Day of Atonement. Described to us in Leviticus 16. We don't know our Old Testament Bibles so very well. Some of you do. But one of the things that would happen on the Day of Atonement, a picture in which God would forgive sins, there were two goats that were brought on the Day of Atonement. And Aaron would lay his hand, he was the high priest, he would lay both his hands on the head of a live goat and confess over that live goat the iniquities, the sins of all the people of Israel and all their transgressions, and all of their sins. And he put them on the head of the goat, and they would send the goat into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. And the goat would bear the iniquities on itself into the remote areas, and it would go out there, and they, it would surely die. And then they would slaughter the other goat. Both a picture of their sins being atoned for. Two animals were involved in the day of this atonement. The first animal was slain sacrificially. The shedding of blood pictured that this was necessary for atonement. And then that other goat sent out in the wilderness, we call it a scapegoat, that's where we get that term. It's a ritual picture, the effect of the atonement, the removal of our guilt. And in this passage, Isaiah 53, these words, he bore... He bore our sin. He bore the iniquities of the people is a picture. Jesus did it. God the Father is laying upon Jesus our sins. All our sins of all who would trust in Him. Jesus is the perfect satisfaction of God's righteousness and holiness and the display of God's love, mercy. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so His Son would come be the Lamb of God so He would, on that moment on the cross, see us. He would look at us. He would put up, say, all the sins of the world are on you and you are going to be judged based on their sins. Jesus is the only reason God can be just and justify the ungodly. This is the last point, is it's necessary for everyone. This this arm of the Lord seen in a servant is absolutely necessary for everyone. Turn your eyes to verse 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I think of Handel's Messiah as this song is sung. Oh, we have, like sheep have gone astray over and over again. Imagine, we're, that's, that's us. See the bookends in this, in this verse? All we, like sheep, have gone astray. The iniquity of us all, all of us. This verse says, all we and us all. There is none righteous. All of us are unrighteous. There's no neutral party. You're not in a special category of, I'm not for or against Jesus. You are against God. There's none who controls his mouth right. Our mouths are open graves of sin. There's none who has a good heart. No one. They're darkened and hardened. There's none, no one that was alive to God, trusting in him and loving him and glorifying and enjoying him. 
We're all dead in our sins. We were like sheep gone astray, wandering every one of us to our own way. Absolutely rebels, every one of us. And the Lord laid upon him our sins so that he could say, forgiven, loved, made my children. And so I end with these words from Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? This, this suffering servant who is serving the Father, who is humble and weak, who is rejected and suffering and sin-bearing, this one who meets every one of our needs in his God's fitting sacrifice that every one of us needs. What should we say to these things? If God is this much for us and doing this for us, and if we've trusted in him, who can be against us? God didn't spare his own son, but he gave us up, he gave him up for us all. Not because we deserved it, it's just love. Will he not spare anything? Why do we doubt him? Why do we run to other things? Oh, believer, this morning, I call you to once again cling to this one who loves you so much and says to you, You are mine. I've given you my son. Will I spare anything for you? Turn to me. Trust me. Obey me. Confess your sins to me. Cling to me. And if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, I call you. If you say, I don't know if I've had this taken care of. I don't know if I've been made his son or daughter. Oh, you can have him today. I call you to trust in him. Look to him. He says, look to me and I will save you. He says that in Isaiah 45, look to me in the ends of the earth and, I, and you will be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none other. What do you look to? You look to the Lord Jesus Christ who offers himself to you. If you will but repent of your sins and ask him to save you, he will save you. He will be your substitute. Your sin is taken care of and you have been given his reward, what he paid for on the cross. These are things we must sing about. These are things we must praise Him. Would you bow your head? I'm going to invite those that are getting baptized to go get ready. Oh God, I pray that you would help us to not live lives that would ignore these things, pass over these things, take these things for granted. I pray young and old, we would just treasure and trust, see, and savor Jesus Christ, our, our one and only Savior, our substitute, our hope. Oh God, I pray that if there's anyone here that has not yet turned to Christ, they would be saved even today. I pray that maybe in their hearts they've already believed as they've looked upon the one described in this passage. I pray that, I pray that they would be saved. And I pray, God, that now as we sing a familiar song on the power of the cross, this would be a response of joyful, tearful, and happy, and rejoicing confidence in you. In Jesus' name, amen.